This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Perception is not reality. So it's entirely possible that John Smoltz is not carrying more of the World Series broadcast with Joe Davis than he did with Joe Buck. Perhaps his time on Mike has not changed, and the quantity of analysis has remained steady. So let's focus on the quality of that commentary, which has been high-grade and proactive. Never more so than in Game 4, when his ability to synthesize complicated pitching principles for a wide audience dovetailed with one of the most spectacular mound performances ever put forth in the Fall Classic, or the playoffs for that matter. The number one analyst job in baseball comes with the baggage of being loaded and treating like a punching bag by the audience. Tim McCarver wore those inside fastballs from the public for decades, and to his credit, never changed. Joe Morgan, well, the masses made some pretty good points. Smoltz has proven malleable and open, adapting and improving. He's tailored his game to suit his strengths. Considering his one-of-a-kind playing career, where he ascended to the top of starting pitcher and closing pitcher mountaintops, we shouldn't be surprised. With the Houston Astros desperately needing a win, they sent Christian Javier out to the mound. The right-hander's remarkable rise from $10,000 signing bonus to end of the bullpen guy to starter to gasp, perhaps the most unhittable hurler in baseball right now is a fantastic story. And though it feels a bit sacrilegious to say, if a person squinted hard enough, they could see shades of Pedro Martinez as he hurled six of his team's no-hit innings last night. Neither his stature or fastball are imposing. Understanding why he's had success, he's now the only player to throw five plus innings while allowing fewer than two hits in postseason history and back-to-back performances is a bit difficult. Smoltz dipped into his bag and pulled out a relatable anecdote. When you're playing catch with someone and their throws jump at the end, how the ball seems to catch the glove as much as the glove catches the ball. Pitch data reveals Javier's fastball moves and it grooves. It plays tricks on the eye and makes the prospect of solid contact a tall task. Smoltz walks a delicate line of accepting the existence of analytics without believing they are the only thing. He's exceptional at bringing the human side of the game to the forefront. There's some curmudgeonly old school hues in his palette, but they are necessary. Because baseball cannot be distilled down to a spreadsheet. Pitcher vs. Hitter is a remarkably violent and aggressive explosion 300 times a night. Some stuff happens too quickly to care about the numbers. Philly starter Aaron Nola had no margin for error. Smoltz correctly pointed out that he made that margin non-existent with a few key missteps in pitch selection. Smoltz has a gravitas to first guess, and the evidence continues to prove his thesis. He was also on top of the biggest managerial decision of the game, Rob Thompson bringing in closer Jose Alvarado in a bases-loaded, no-out jam in the fifth inning. An impossible situation that concluded with the game out of reach and the series destined to return to Houston. It's possible that I underestimated Smoltz. It's also possible that he's gotten better. There's no doubt that he comes across more confident, that he's quicker on his feet, and that he's comfortable taking equal time with Davis. 
That, too, is a credit to a play-by-play announcer working his first World Series. This broadcast isn't necessarily better than it was with Joe Buck. It's just different. It's put a brighter light on Smoltz, who is making the most of his increased pitch count. Welcome to the big weekend. I am Kyle Coster. I am here with Liam McCune. We have a grab bag, a cornucopia, in advance of Thanksgiving of topics to get to before oh, another weekend is coming up. We have a huge college football matchup with Tennessee playing Georgia. Tennessee's back. They might be all the way back when we come to you on Monday. But first, let's talk about everybody's favorite topic, the Brooklyn Nets. What's not to discuss here? Uh, Let's start with Kyrie Irving, who refuses to apologize for amplifying an anti-Semitic film on his platform, who is doubling and tripling down on proving that he's the smartest person in the room and shows no signs of remorse. Uh, Minutes ago, Adam Silver in the NBA released a statement that he's going to meet in person with Irving and try to get that elusive apology we've all been looking for. Liam, I think the best question to ask you is, if you weren't completely fed up and over this guy before, this has to be the straw that breaks the camel's back, right? I've thought that several times about Kyrie Irving at this point. I just, I don't know. This is a, this is a different hot-button topic for him to hit, obviously. It's not him just being detrimental to the team or the people around him, although obviously he is. It's you know, detrimental actions towards an entire group of people and somehow igniting a gigantic anti-Semitism conversation that has taken on very much a life of its own and brought a lot of ugly things to light. And he still won't apologize for it. And, you know, benefit of the doubt was left behind years and years ago. And even if you give him some level of a benefit of the doubt, there's no way to deny that he won't say, I'm sorry for pushing Holocaust denial content. Like, it's about that's about accountability. It's about responsibility. And he just ref- is refusing to take responsibility for it. He even said, uh, I didn't mean to hurt people. I didn't make the documentary today, which is doing some real mental gymnastics as far as to who's responsible for the current situation that he finds himself in. And it's overall, I mean, you know, outside of the real world implications, which are very serious and really severe, it's another depressing reminder that talent reigns supreme in the NBA. What he's doing is, you know, arguably as bad as when Myers Leonard used an anti-Semitic slur and the hammer came down immediately on Myers Leonard. Nobody could take a breath before he got suspended. He has not been touched by an NBA team since. And it's all because he was a middling player who nobody really cared about instead of, you know, one of the NBA's best pure scorers and ball handlers. And as Stephen A. Smith often describes him, box office. Uh, Adam Silver, like you said, is going to meet with him next week. Don't know why he can't meet with him immediately, but I guess being the commissioner, uh, he's got some things on his plate, especially, you know, right now. Lots of bad storylines kind of ruining what has been a good start to the NBA season basketball-wise. Maybe there's some sort of discipline handed out. The Nets don't seem interested in doing that. The only action Sean Marks has taken was to prevent Kyrie from speaking to the media to make things worse, which is both cowardly and didn't work at all. So one would hope that um, 
some consequences will be meted out for this, but I'm not going to get my hopes up personally. And I think, you know, a lot of Nets fans might be done with the BS by this point. Well, you mentioned Myers Leonard and the situations are similar, but they're not analogous. I think what Kyrie's doing is 10 times worse than what Leonard did. Leonard was live streaming himself, playing a video game. He used one horrific word, which nobody should ever use, but you understand how someone can make that mistake one time. He apologized. Like you said, his talent does not elevate him past these controversies. He's paying consequences on the back end. And we can have the discussion whether that's fair or not, whether that's right or wrong all day long. But I think we're past the point of consequences for Kyrie Irving. Uh, Let me explain that. I don't really care if he gets suspended. I don't really care what the Nets do. I think that he's lost. And a minute ago, he said this, I am a beacon of light. I am not afraid of these mics, these cameras. Any label you put on me, I'm able to dismiss because I study. I know the Oxford Dictionary. Now, outside of cribbing his talking points from Vampire Weekend lyrics, that suggests that this is a man who will never get it. I know that we're supposed to believe in reconciliation and people moving past it, but there's an important step required to do that. And that's admitting that you're wrong. And I am so frustrated that this guy doesn't understand that he did something wrong. Yes, he didn't make the documentary, but he promoted it and he's still standing by it. And it's not a matter of gray area with this stuff. We're talking about anti-Semitism. We're talking about hate speech. We're talking about things that have no place in society, especially at a time where this issue is remarkably and sadly like permeating our lives in very real ways as we in, in bigger ways than basketball. The only way to get past this is for Kyrie to have some sort of epiphany that he is not the all-knowing one. And he has been in a situation an entire life where everybody has kissed his ass and not pushed back on him. And I think that part of me is a little bit sad for him, honestly, man, because it's to be this disconnected from reality and to be this impervious to your actions and to have so little self-reflection that you can't say, I'm sorry, and attempt to rectify the situation. Even at this point, I would say, I don't care if he thinks that's all bullshit. At what point do you start doing it for the betterment of your team or everybody around you that's hurting for this? Like, this is the ultimate selfish move that this guy has ever made in a long history of making selfish moves. And I don't hold out any hope for him. So I don't think that this thing ever gets resolved because, you know, if the discipline comes down, you know what that's going to do? It's going to make Kyrie an even bigger martyr in his eyes and his army of misguided souls that follow what he says. And it's a permanent stain, I think. I think if you look at the rest of the stuff that Kyrie has pulled off, you know, people 15, 20 years down the road aren't really going to care that he quit on the Celtics and said he was going to resign and then didn't. Like, that was a big deal at the time. Even now, we're, you know, three or, Jesus, how long? Four years removed since then. Uh, You know, nobody really, it just kind of is what it is. Even the vaccine stuff. You know, it was really, it was stupid at the time. It remains pretty stupid, but like, that's one of those things as time goes on, it's like, well, Kyrie didn't play that whole season because he didn't want to get vaccinated. What an idiot, whatever. But this is bigger than that. This is a legacy ruiner if there was anything left on that front because being anti-Semitic is not a label that you can just brush off, especially when you are asked directly 
if you hold anti-Semitic beliefs and does it, he, he didn't say no. He didn't say yes. And he said he can't be anti-Semitic if he knows where he comes from, which kind of sounds like he's still parroting the basis of the movie that he's all in this trouble for. It's one of those things where in, over the next few years, Kyrie Irving is going to become synonymous with this. People who don't watch sports, people who couldn't have possibly cared or known that, you know, he was kind of a loose, selfish loser before this, now know everything about his beliefs and where he stands on this sort of thing. And it's something that's never going to go away. And, you know, damn right. Like, you hope it doesn't because this isn't some, this, you know, it's like you said, this affects everybody. This is about our society. It's not about the Nets championship hopes this year and whether or not KD is on board with all this garbage. It's, you know, it, it especially taking place in Brooklyn, in New York City, of all places, it's insane. So it's just, it is sad. It's sad on multiple levels. And even getting, seeing Kyrie get his comeuppance in the form of a suspension or something wouldn't really feel all that satisfying for the neutral observer because all that shit is still out there. The harm has been done. The harm will continue to get done. If you've been on Twitter at all over the last week, there have been an insane amount of people who are like whataboutisms, who are using whataboutisms to defend anti-Semitism. They're frankly pushing anti-Semitism in ways that I have personally never seen on an online forum before. There's always going to be people talking about that stuff because, you know, Twitter and the internet in general is a cesspool of hatred. But these are, you know, it's huge numbers. It's like the concurrent talking point with whether or not Kyrie Irving is anti-Semitic is whether or not anti-Semitism is wrong somehow in like larger forums. And that is the worst thing that could have possibly come out of this is that suddenly anti-Semitism is a talking point instead of something that we all accept to be wrong. I thought we were over this shit a long time ago. Like, like I said, there's going to be anti-Semitism everywhere because there's forms of hate everywhere. But as far as a large picture discourse, it's coming back in a way that we haven't seen in a long time. And it's really, really disturbing. And the media side of this goes to what you're just talking about. Uh, Kyrie is being asked these questions by reporters um, because they're giving him the opportunity to clarify his stance and clean it up. So he's doing the same thing that everybody who finds themselves in this situation, uh, these so-called free thinkers do, and they, they blame the press, right? This is about the press making a story out of nothing and using it to leverage their own brands. But that's not what's going on here, okay? You can't ignore this thing. You got the owner of the team commenting on it. You got the league commenting on it. You got all these groups commenting on it. You are giving with each question you ask Irving the opportunity for him to dig himself out of this hole or to move himself a little bit away from the bright, hot light of the controversy. And every single time he responds by throwing gas on it. Now that's his choice. That's not the reporter's choice. Yes. The reporters can ask him anything that he wants, but you want to know what? They are the avatar for the public. And if the public doesn't care about this issue, then we're even more lost than I thought we were. Because people want to know deep down, like I still think that there's some strands of society that are being held together. We want to know who these players are. We want to know what they really think. And we can move on and we can dismiss, disown, stop rooting for these people if that's what we choose to do. But we want to be armed with all the information that others can gather on our behalf 
so we can make an informed decision. So it's really confusing and so frustrating to me that Kyrie is doing the same old playbook of making the media the enemy when really they are his biggest lifeline and the best way for him to move past this. It It, it is just so damning, so frustrating. Like I said, I'm not expecting him to suddenly see the light, but from the media side of this, what are your big picture thoughts on how it's been covered? Well, I think that the villainization of the media has been actually somewhat lesser than I expected from this kind of situation. Uh, Kyrie's freak out at Nick Friedel was pretty widely accepted as something like pretty embarrassing for Kyrie. There wasn't a ton of backlash towards Nick for uh, asking the questions, which is frankly what I expected. And there were still segments of the Twitter population that had that reaction. But, you know, the reporters have to ask the questions, right? That's the entire part of the job, whether or not you think that that should include the off-court stuff is irrelevant. That's it's It's part of the job to ask and inform fans about what they're you know these athletes think and how it affects the team at large and yada 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 we don't need to explain why him asking the question was important Kyrie could have just no commented that and that would have been entirely within his rights he would have gotten criticized for doing so in a much different manner than he ended up criticizing but he was the one who chose to have essentially a meltdown in the public eye and accuse Nick of dehumanizing him by asking him about his actions which I noted at the time and still feel is actually the opposite of dehumanizing because how are we human if not for the ability to make our own decisions and create our own actions. But this is actually kind of an interesting media story to cover because unlike some circumstances in the past, this is just simple Q&A stuff that's generating a shit ton of news. They're literally just asking the questions. It's not asking leading questions like some people might accuse reporters of doing, in which they do sometimes. It's not, you know, misinterpreting. It's not taking quotes out of context. They ask Kyrie. Kyrie answers in the way that he answers, and that incites this gigantic problem because his answers are problematic. And I'm not, you know, holding out any hope that it might cause some people to revisit what their view of media is or should be and what their role plays. But if not for the media, what, you know, wh where does where does Kyrie stand right now? If not for the questions that are being asked to him, he's probably in slightly less hot water. But then it's just I then it, the story is Kyrie Irving sent out a link to an anti-Semitic movie and nobody knows why, which is equally a problem. It doesn't change the fundamental issue at hand. So it is, um, you know, it's probably quite the time to be a Nets reporter. And I don't think the Nets are going to continue to be helpful in the media reporting realm. I wouldn't be surprised to see Kyrie locked out of media appearances for, you know, another couple of days, which apparently they can do. I didn't know they were allowed to do that, but I guess they can. Um, and even today, the press conference that ignited part of this conversation, Nets PR came in and cut it off. And it's unfortunate, but at the end of the day, the only way that this issue gets resolved is if Kyrie Irving asks those questions or however close to resolve you get for this. It is if he gets asked those questions and the only people who can ask those questions are reporters because Kyrie isn't talking to anybody else. 
Well, that's not the only fire the Brooklyn Nets have because they have decided to bring in Ime Adoka. He used to coach your beloved Boston Celtics, but not so long ago, he was suspended for the year. Um, the story, when it came out, we still don't have all the details. I've heard some things. It's not great. Um, everybody who seems to be in the know seems to be has the consensus opinion that the suspension was warranted and that a lot of the details were being protected by the Celtics because they hoped that one day, however unlikely, he could come back and coach again. Now, the Steve Nash era in Brooklyn, he actually won, but it was marred by this soap opera, not of his own making. I think in some ways he probably feels freer than ever that he doesn't have to have these headaches anymore. But I am struggling to understand how it's possible that they could have done their due diligence to the point where they bring Adoka in and then more details become readily public and it doesn't look good. How in the world did they decide that this was the time to add another sideshow to the mix when they already have so much tumult behind those gates? I think they're flailing. I think that, you know, they were going to be able to push all the BS aside if they're winning games. They didn't win games. Sean Marks knows it's his neck on the line. Joe Desai is probably very upset that his extremely expensive team is starting slow out of the gates. And they, I cannot possibly understand why they would invite the controversy, but they're apparently prioritizing the on-court product over the off-court circus. And there are certain benefits to that, but it does seem kind of insane for a businessman of Joe Desai's stature to continue to invite damage to the uh, franchise's public image. Um, you know, the Kyrie stuff, anti-Semitism, that's going to be a big problem. They bring in Udoka, more info will leak. Everybody knows that. And, you know, it's telling that the Celtics aren't even asking for any compensation in return for letting Udoka out of his contract because he's going to the Nets, obviously, you know, maybe Boston's biggest rival at the moment, a huge playoff obstacle. And you could say that the Celtics are just riding their high horse right now. And, you know, they want to take the moral high ground or whatever, but like every sports team isn't as moral as you think it is. Right. We all thought the Spurs did a great job with Joshua Primo. And then, you know, the accusations made today uh, seem to suggest that the Spurs buried this story for quite some time. All these organizations operate in a similar manner. If the Celtics, you know, were just doing this out of a moral high ground thing, I'd be very surprised. It would be more of we need to wash our hands of this as quickly as possible. Let's just get it over with, get it done, make everything very clear for the players where we stand. And if that's the case, and there's some stuff that, you know, we haven't heard about that is probably going to be pretty bad. And I guess it pales in comparison to a superstar being anti or not being anti-Semitic, but pushing anti-Semitic con uh, content, right? Compared to a coach with a allegedly consensual relationship uh, with an underling, that's, you know, I guess it's small, small fry stuff, but it's still, it's like, why would they be dumping gasoline on the fire like this? And the only answer is that the people who are in charge really don't want to get fired. And this is the last gasp, their last hope that this is going to work. Udoka is the only guy who can come in here, yell at Kyrie and Katie and they'll listen to him. 
and organize the defense, blah, blah, blah. And I guess they're just willing to accept that they're going to be faced with a lot of press conference questions about what exactly went down and they can no comment all they want, but eventually this stuff is going to get out and it's going to be worse for Udoka to have to answer those questions in a public forum than if the information came out after lawsuits got filed or whatever, when he's just stuffed in a closet somewhere doing his one year suspension. Obviously Udoka can coach. We saw that last year and you understand that the impetus is to win and that's job one. Let's be real. Let's be adults here. But it seems dubious for your long-term success to continue to alienate groups who have very specific and real grievances about the way that they feel that the organization is responding to some of these serious issues. Yes, you don't want to get fired. Has enough time passed that you can really bring him in? This was a great question asked by Ryan Rosillo on his latest pod. And his thesis was, it's never going to be the right time. If they did this in February, would that have been enough time? If they had done this at the end of this season, would would that have been the right time? No, people would still be mad. But I can answer personally, it's too soon. Because to me, it doesn't feel like Odoka faced any punishment. What was he out? Eight games? Like eight games? Like I'm not so interested in optics. I understand how the world works and it's not 40 games is really not any different than eight, but it is in the sense of the message that you're sending to anybody who cares to notice and has eyes. Like that's everybody's reaction. Like already? Like if everybody is saying, whoa, that seems a little bit too soon. Take a set if there was ever a right time aside and just agree that no, this doesn't feel like it's the right time. I mean, he's right. There isn't a right time for it. It's just, it is, it is a shame, especially given the nature of these allegations, the nature of an improper relationship with a subordinate in a, obviously a sports world that is largely dominated by men. And they might not see something wrong with that, but obviously the power dynamics in play, there's something very wrong with it. Even outside of the optics angle, it's frankly hard to believe that the Nets could have done their due diligence in the time frame that we currently have. Nobody knew about this until like halfway through September. It was a shock to everybody, including like half of the Celtics organization. And you're telling me that the Nets managed to do what the Celtics did in six months and decided to just say, yeah, that that should be fine. Like, I I just have a really hard time believing that they could have done that. And so all the optics stuff is right. There's never going to be a right time to bring them on. It also is a terrible look. It shows that if you're good enough, again, the overarching connecting through line here is if you're good enough at your job, then it does not matter what you've done up to a certain point. And that's sending, again, this message that Udoka is good enough at his job, so you know, consequences of his actions can be kind of shifted away because who cares? And the Celtics aren't going to be arbiters of that. And I don't think they should be expected to, but just fun or uh, functionally, this seems like it's a ticking time. You know, what if it, what, 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 what if the really bad stuff comes out? What if it's worse than anything we could have possibly imagined? And suddenly the Nets are looking like not only morons, but total assholes for hiring this guy. Like, how does that balance with the reward of having a good basketball team, right? 
And it goes back to, you know, again, really surprising that a businessman who owns that the businessman who owns the franchise is so willing to tie these boats together in a storm, because if it sinks, then it's a really big problem. All right, let's lighten the mood. Let's talk about the World Series. We had a no-hitter last night. It was thrilling. Christian Javier looked like the greatest pitcher in Major League Baseball, and he has been the greatest pitcher in Major League Baseball for the last two starts. It was a combined no-hitter. And we're going to get to how many people are watching baseball versus other things in the next topic. But the reaction seems to be one of two things this morning. Number one, people are lying and saying that they didn't know there was a no-hitter going on. I have heard five different people claim that they were surprised that there was a no-hitter in the World Series. So we are got some willful ignorance uh, played up for effect going on. But number two, I see a lot of people saying that they are unimpressed by a combined no-hitter in the goddamn World Series. So let me phrase it to you this way. You're younger than I am. You probably became aware of social media and the larger discourse on sports blogs and mainstream sports websites and national radio shows, maybe let's say five years ago. Okay. Five years ago, it doesn't feel like we were doing this. It didn't feel as though there was a rush to go and share your opinion that something awesome that happened wasn't that awesome. And it's so troubling to me because it's the World Series and there was a no-hitter. Who cares if it took three people? This is really special. Has it always been like this for your career, Liam, or has it gotten worse in the time since you started monitoring this stuff closely? I think it's gotten a lot worse because, you know, even when I was in college and I was writing and interning, I understood that negativity tends to drive clicks. Negativity stirs up controversy, negative headlines, negative takes. This thing is bad, actually. Those are legitimate ways of driving traffic. And, you know, sometimes it gets to be too much, but other times there are legitimate angles to take where negativity is the correct one. But in terms of just not even, you know, there is no, at this point, I feel it's gotten worse because now people are leaning towards the negativity, the negative opinion for no real personal gain. It's like tweeting out that the no-hitter wasn't actually a no-hitter because it took three pitchers or that it actually sucks and it wasn't that impressive. Uh, like on your own Twitter account doesn't do anything except for get a bunch of people mad at you and everybody seems to love that. And so throwing out these essentially bad opinions out there for the purpose of stirring up conversation around your opinion is reflective of society right now in a way that probably isn't super great, I would say. But overall, yeah, it's gotten worse. And I mean, there are always going to be people with the bad opinions, but now it seems like everybody wants to have the bad opinion instead of simply having the bad opinion. And that sucks. That sucks a lot. I would push against saying that it's no personal gain because I think it's kind of branding. Like, you're so cool, you don't care about this. Uh, and, and it's really bizarre. Okay, the last topic tonight. Finally, we get to decide, we get to see the empirical evidence will be in. We will finally know if football is better than baseball based on how many people watch each sport as they go up against each other. It is two Houston teams playing two Philadelphia teams. 
One game is Thursday night football on Amazon. The other is game five of the World Series with Justin Verlander against Noah Syndergaard. What do you think we're going to discover? I actually have a hot take on this. I think that we're going to discover that baseball World Series games are a lot closer to an NFL streaming Thursday night football game than we might be expecting. Everybody wants to take the victory lap already that the NFL is king and that, you know, it's going to probably get like, you know, eight, nine, 10 million more viewers than a pivotal game five in an exciting World Series with a classic underdog versus the hated, you know, superior cheaters, all that good stuff. Lots of good storylines there, but I don't, I don't think that's going to be the case mostly because of the streaming aspect of this. If it was on NFL network, then it would be NFL's King and let's take a lap. But I think that, you know, because what it comes down to in terms of this, like the viewership stuff is that it's that middle ground of people who like normally wouldn't be watching sports. Basically, what are they going to turn on? Are they going to go onto the Amazon Prime to watch football? Are they going to flip to Fox, which, you know, when their cable TV is already on and watch that? And I think I think it's going to be closer. I think the people who are uh, ready to declare baseball dead forever because the World Series doesn't outview Thursday Night Football are going to be pretty wrong. Not super wrong. I don't think that the World Series is going to truly outview Thursday Night Football because football. But I think it's going to be pretty – I think it's going to be pretty close. It's going to be really, really close. I would love for baseball to win the all-important ratings war um, because it benefits me so much personally. Here's my hot take. I don't give a shit. I don't give a <laughs> shit if you watch the baseball game tonight. You want to know why? Because I'm going to watch it. I'm going to love it. It's the World Series. Why are you posting about – baseball if you don't like it why are you telling me baseball is dying and it's no good if you don't like it i would love to offer a compromise to all national media who is disinterested in baseball and only talks about it to put it down we would both be happier if you shut up kept it out of your mouth and just let me enjoy it because you want to know what all that hate all this silliness it makes me like it more because i realize that I have room in my heart to like two different things at the same time. You want to know what I'm going to do tonight? I'm going to check out both like a perfectly sane, reasonable human being with the technology to do so. Bigger picture. It is insane to me that so many people have chosen to live their lives. And I'm not talking about like the 15 of us who are in this industry, who presumably should care about ratings and make extrapolations about what's going to happen in the sport and what's good for the sport and what's bad for the sport. And it changes all the time. Why are people at home? Why have they adopted that personality? Because it has no benefit to them. Like, do they just want to be part of something that wins? It's sad to me. I hate it. If for some miracle, the world series outdraws football tonight, I will never shut up about it. And I will never shut up about it because it'll prove how stupid this whole argument is. Because you want to know what? At the end of the day, NFL is still going to be king and baseball is still going to be what it always is. Something awesome that millions and millions of people enjoy who don't want to contextualize it. Things are not better because more people watch them. If that was the case, Young Sheldon would be the greatest television show that was ever created. Let's use our brains do some discerning here, like what you like, and stop raining on people's parades. I would actually make the argument that the more people watch something, the worse it is. 
the discourse gets much worse when you involve an extra couple million people, regardless of uh, what the content is. And I hope that baseball outviews football tonight because I want to hear you not shut up about it. And you you had a very good point about why people who aren't paid to care about this give a shit about this at all. I truly don't understand it. I mean, how do you how does it even be more than like a passing bit of information where you're like, dang, football really is king, and then you just move on? Like there are people using it as proof that baseball is dying and all this like weird shit. And it goes for other sports too. Like the NBA finals are borderline insufferable to talk about online because so many people are like, well, game six of the NBA finals couldn't even get that of a regular season football game. Like who cares? I'm one of the 10 million people who watched it. I had a good time except for this year and I really enjoyed it. And like, what is the, what, I don't, I don't understand how using this as a data point is fun for anybody. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And it's enjoy every, things. Just enjoy. And it's every single week. Like that's the thing I think on the closing point on this, that, that shocks me the most is that the answers are always the same. And yet every single Tuesday we get, Hey, look at these big numbers. The NFL game did. Thanks, man. Thanks. We would be lost without you. All right, Liam, you're also here to talk about a trip you took. You went out to Las Vegas, courtesy of Icy Hot, to check out Raiders tight end Darren Waller and his recovery process. Now he's currently rehabbing from an injury. Why don't you tell us about how all that went down? Sure. So Icy Hot reached out, asked if I'd be interested in covering, uh, you know, the average day of recovery with an NFL player. This was a couple weeks, uh, a couple weeks ago. And the idea initially was supposed to be joining him on the Tuesday after the Raiders hosted the Texans in Las Vegas. Obviously, that didn't quite go according to plan because Waller hurt his hamstring in week five against the Chiefs, was ruled out for uh, the Texans game. So the story took on a little bit of a different angle where then instead of just your average day of recovery, it became covering his hamstring rehab, which actually, to my surprise, didn't change too much about what he did. But I took him up on it, went out there, and uh, the idea was basically we showed up in the morning at Darren's uh, workout facility that he goes to outside of the stadium. He explained that there's only so many trainers for an entire team, so he seeks out personalized treatment. And we watched him work out, and then we went about, uh, you know, kind of the day he would otherwise with recovery, which featured... Uh, some sauna and ice bath action, a sensory deprivation chamber, a massage, and plenty of applications of Icy Hot. Now, the uh, kicker for the whole thing is that the reporters, it was myself, uh, a reporter from Heavy.com, and a, a reporter from People.com, and a reporter from Men's Health. We were invited to participate alongside Darren in all the stuff he did. Now, I will preface this by saying I did not do any of the actual workouts because, frankly, I value my hamstring quite a bit. And he was doing some pretty medium intensity stuff. But, you know, watching a six foot six, 250 pound guy do a box jump while his trainer's leaning on his hip with all of his strength was more than a little intimidating. And I decided to bow out on that particular aspect but overall it was really interesting because it was the first time i ever did something like uh, immersion journalism 
where I, you know, did something and then I wrote about it. Uh, the article I ended up writing was more analytical than it was experiential. I didn't write, you know, in the first person, I didn't talk about what I went through. It was more about being able to talk with authority about what Darren went through or goes through because I was able to participate alongside him. Your piece is up on the big lead right now. Uh, people should check it out, obviously. Uh, I think one takeaway for me as I was editing it and reading it several times was that, you know, we think that we know what these athletes go through for their job, but then you see a piece like this, which is not necessarily like the strength training. It's not the practice. It's all the stuff that you take for granted. Um, fans are so unforgiving when it comes to when a player is not available to be out on the field. And I think pieces like this really show what an uphill battle it really is. And what a miracle it is that these football players are out there sometimes 17 consecutive weeks in, in the season. And I think for me, it gave an appreciation of the dedication that it takes to do this, but also the team it takes to do this, not just the Raiders, not just Waller having total buy-in, but they couldn't get where they're going without a lot of ancillary individuals trying to help them in that pursuit. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, there, there is a glorified view of an athlete's lifestyle where you just get to score touchdowns and you make millions of dollars for doing it. And then you get to go out and hang out with all your buddies and all your money later. And that's true. And then there is also the understanding as uh, athletes have grown more exposed to the media, we get more inside what their day-to-day -day life is like. And, you know, their day-to-day -day life grows more intense with the advancement of medical science and everything is that most people who watch sports understand that these guys aren't just showing up once a week to play and then goofing off the rest of the week. They're, you know, there's a serious workout component to this that they have to do, but then seeing it up close is a different matter entirely, both in terms of, in you know the awe you feel of what the human body can accomplish because i mean jesus watching you know darren waller work up to a full sprint over the course of like 12 feet in uh, his workout facility was extremely impressive it's, it's something that you know once again it's like sitting courtside in an nba game or whatever you know you're like how are human beings capable of doing this but then it's also like you said it's a complete buy-in waller told me he loves the process now you know he used to not be like that and once he got out of rehab, he realized that he really needed to take it seriously if he wanted to continue his career. And it's kind of the day by day. He really like enjoys every bit of it. And not every guy needs to be like that. But every single guy on a football team, on a basketball team, on a baseball team needs to be that committed to not only working out, breaking their lift, uh, lift records, benching as much as they can, but also doing their due diligence and strictly adhering to recovery schedules, which are as important as building muscle mass and increasing your 40 and everything. You know, none of that matters if you can't build your body up to be sturdy and then to stay on the field, right? The best ability is availability. And it's just a lot of discipline. You understand that you need discipline to be a professional athlete, but most of us struggle with a standard gym regimen, right? Where we want to go like twice a week, three times a week. And that's a very normal and human thing to struggle with because, you know, working out sucks, even if you're getting paid for it, like Darren Waller is, but he really, he, you know, every single day he has to stick with it or he's not going to be able to get on the field or he's not going to perform as well as he wants to on the field. He's not going to be able to, you know, prove to the team that their faith in him was well-placed 
And it is hard. It is really, really hard to imagine doing that every single day, even if I was also built like a Greek god. It's interesting that Waller was the subject of this profile because he has an interesting background. Obviously, what you turned in and what you witnessed is a real sign of maturity and the difference between the concerns about him as he was coming in the league uh, to where he is now. And he's been rewarded with a great contract. We all identify him as one of the top tight ends in football. What was he like to deal with personally? He was, uh, he was reserved. He was a reserved guy, quiet, but he was enthusiastic about the workouts and everything he was doing. But most importantly, he was pretty cool about the kind of weird setup that this was. It's weird. It would be weird to have a bunch of reporters show up for what you would consider to be a day in your life and kind of follow you around and ask you questions about it. And athletes are trained to go through this. And Waller's no newbie. He's been around in the NFL since 2016 when he was uh, on the Ravens practice squad. He knows how to deal with reporters. He knows what we're about. He knows what we're looking for. But still, like I'm, you know, sitting next to him in a four foot sauna with the temperature cranked up to 175 degrees before I go into the ice bath he was just in. And he's willing to just sit there and just kind of shoot the shit with me while I nervously try to imagine that I'm not going to pass out once I get in the ice bath, you know? Um, so that really stood out to me was just, you know, imagine if you had a reporter following you around in your day-to-day life and you're like, well, why'd you make the PB&J that way instead of the other way for your baby? You know, it's, it's uh, well, don't make PB&J for your baby, but he was, he was cool. I really liked him. And it's like you said, there's a lot of maturity shown there. He was able and he was willing to talk openly about his struggle with addiction. And, you know, that was a lot of the reason why he ended up partnering with Iciot is that he was addicted to painkillers. So he needed a, you know, safe alternative. And Iciot provided that for him. And that's impressive. That's a really, you know, that was obviously a hard, difficult time for his life and for him to be willing to talk about that to a reporter he met three hours previously and didn't have any real connection with was, I thought, very impressive. Well, as journalists, we're taught to uh, not become the story. But yeah, if you're ever profiling me and I try to feed my newborn baby a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, I think you need to step in. Those are extenuating circumstances. Uh, Any Vegas stories you'd like to share? Do those stay out there? I lost a lot of my money. It was my first time in Vegas, so I decided to play the slots. Don't play the slots. It's all a gag. But uh, otherwise, you know, we'll keep what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. It was neat. It was uh, I would go back, I think, is my overall review. But I would go back with a very rich friend of mine who'd be willing to pay for most of my stuff. I think that that would be fun for me. That is the takeaway as someone who is uh, not had to pay their way to Vegas a few times. It is certainly more fun uh, than when you're footing the bill yourself. But no, we got to dig in deep if this is was this was the first trip. Kind of later in your life, it seems like most people get to Vegas uh, before they're 26. But did it? match your expectations or what was different than you had anticipated i think it pretty much matched my expectations i've never went to vegas because it's as simple as i grew up on the east coast i went to college on the east coast vegas is kind of far away and especially if you grow up in the northeast where there's new york city right there your desire for big city living and you know places where you can go where a cocktail is 45 dollars is easily satisfied I think the strip surprised me a little bit because I didn't realize quite how much it was basically like if you made Times Square into like a mile long stretch. I think I don't know if my, I wouldn't say my expectations were higher or lower or lower, but they were a little different. And it was it was a unique it was unique in that 
the entire space of the strip where we spent half the time because all the workout stuff was around Allegiant Stadium, which is just outside Las Vegas. Um, it felt like one giant amusement park down to having, you know, a bunch of people dressed up as Disney characters trying to harass you to take a picture with them so they could charge you, charge you $35 for it, you know? It was, that was a little surprising. I thought, you know, the, it, even the casinos, the casinos are like if you took a casino and then you put a mall into it and then you added some like Disneyland themes and that's pretty much the whole experience. I, th I don't know, maybe I watched too much Ocean's Eleven, but I thought there'd be a little bit more of like a proper, you know, Terry Benedict style setup with the pit and everything instead of just kind of poker, poker tables meshed in between all of the slot machines. That's uh, Double Down, Liam McCune. Uh, I'm Kyle Blackjack Coster. Um, go baseball. Go read Liam's piece on Darren Waller and his recovery process. And we'll be back with another episode on Monday.